0: Children's Church. So starting in verse 18 of chapter 8, we we'll have been going through this chapter for a few weeks now in a series we've been titled uh, No Condemnation, and um, kind of a, a Lent series, or the, the season of Lent. And then uh, on Good Friday, we'll have a service at 7 o'clock at night that day, and then we'll have obviously Sunday, Sunday, Easter Sunday service, and we'll be talking all about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Um, so we'll finish this, uh, this uh, series on Palm on, on Sunday. Starting in verse 18. For I have considered the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation weighs with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only that creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly for adoption as as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse twenty-four. For in, the, in this hope we were saved. Not hope that is seen is not hope. For what who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray for Redeemer Fellowship Church. We pray for the people here. Lord, we thank you that they're here. We thank you that you brought them. We all come into this room with different weeks, different months, different years, a different past, Lord. Some of us grew up in the church. Some didn't grow up in the church. Some are have been Christians for most of their lives. Some are new to Christianity. Some are here, are, have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray as we come to the text, as we come to your word, your word has authority on our lives, Lord. It has far more authority on our lives than we think. Or we think that culture has authority over us, or, or our jobs, or our parents, or our people that may uh, give us money or have something over us. But your word, Lord, has authority. We're accountable to your word. And Lord, your word not only tells us what to do, not only does it, only does it command us on how we should live our lives, but it provides us grace. It provides us life. It shows us where the source of love and compassion is. Because you, Lord, are a God of love. You are the God, Lord, you are love. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand you and understand your word this morning. Lord, we pray for uh, missionaries that are planting churches here in the United States and and Canada, Lord. We pray for them. We pray for their families. We pray for the churches that they're starting. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, provide them the resources that they need. We pray that they would be faithful to the teachings of your word. May they they see people come to know Christ. May May we see people discipled in your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, this morning that you would again convict us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the title of the passage is On Tippy Toes. And uh, well, this, this passage is is interesting because it kind of personifies creation, right? Creation, in and of itself, is a character in the passage today. Right? It's not just talking about humanity. It's not just talking about the church. It's not just talking about Christ and the Spirit. It's talking about creation itself. And it personifies creation and their expectation and their excitement. About the of the resurrection of the body, or the consummation of God's kingdom that will come in the future, and with that being uh, this of, this text being a lot about creation, I think it's appropriate to talk about creation. There's a book that I've been reading called "Finding God in the Ordinary" by Pierce Taylor Hibbs, who uh, teaches at Westminster Seminary. He's kind of he's a, an Eng, he's a, he, goes, he teaches at a seminary, but he's kind of uh, an expert on the English language. and That's where I think he, he did all the studies in. So he, he writes this book. And it's very well written, being someone who's an English uh, scholar. And he talks about his, his you know a, a being in creation and an identifying God. In creation, not this idea that God is in, is actually in the trees or in the leaves or in the birds. But that God is separate; He is the Creator, not the creation. He is the Creator of creation, but that God's presence is in everything that He has created. Like He is everywhere, and he, so He He reflects on God's presence in His creation, and the beauty of creation. Right? And if you've been anywhere, you've traveled, even if you're just sitting on your porch or your deck and you're just looking out, and it's a beautiful day, and you see the flowers and the birds and the trees, or it's autumn, and you see the leaves on the trees, and you're just kind of like happy, right? There's a joy that comes with just staring at God's creation. And there's a reason for that, because God created it. And you actually are experiencing his presence as you look. And, and observe his creation. At the same time, there is tr- destruction in creation as well. Like there is destruction, there is death in, in the world, there is, there is sinkholes, there is uh, uh, mudslides, there's earthquakes, there's other things. There's tr- there's, there's the, you can see creation itself is, is decaying and, and, being, and, and, and it's corrupted and it's, it is kind of dying in some ways. But God is beautiful, creation is still beautiful, creation is still miraculous, it's still majestic, it's still wonderful to to be in and to observe and to reflect on. You know, for me, and, and the author writes about this, he talks about coffee, and I know some of you well, and you, your, your love for coffee, and if you know me, I love coffee. Coffee and drink it all the time. I said some, to someone recently that I can probably not eat and just drink coffee for the day and be perfectly happy with that day of, of, mm. of my day and just spending time drinking coffee. And there's a there's a there isn't a there's a there's a there's a reason why people like coffee. It's not just because of the caffeine. There's more to it than that. If you go to a coffee shop, it's being in, the, in that space, right? It's, it's getting the coffee. It's the, the steam that comes from the coffee. It's the dark color. And if you like to use cream, you usually a, I like to use a glass like a, like a, like a, like a glass mug where you can see the actual coffee. You pour the milk and you see that kind of beautiful color change from that black to that brown. And there's that, there's just everything about it is just wonderful. It's so wonderful. There's just a certain beauty to it. And the reason why is it's not just simply coffee. God created the beans, right? Coffee is something that we didn't create. God created coffee, right? Um, and, and at the same time, listening, I was drinking coffee and then listening to jazz music. I literally was drinking coffee, and listening to jazz music, writing the sermon all at the same time. I was listening to to Archie Shep, and it was just. Awesome. If you like jazz music, you appreciate jazz music and coffee. Like, there's just a a certain balance and harmony to all of this. And with jazz music, like all, I always will tell Maggie, Maggie, what instruments do you hear? She'll go, oh, I hear the saxophone. What other instruments do you hear? Oh, I hear the trumpet. What other instruments do you hear? Oh, I, I think I hear a drum. And she'll like she'll identify the different instruments. But that's what the wonderful thing about jazz, you have all these different instruments playing it together. And it's not like someone, like the guitar player has all the attention, all the instruments are fighting for attention in jazz music right? Um, There's a certain freedom to jazz music, right? You know, jazz, the music that was created after the slaves were free from slavery. In America, jazz music was this music that spoke of freedom, right? Because there's a certain freedom in jazz, right? There's there's not a lot of rules. There's a lot of freedom that instruments just kind of play along and they create music together. Um, There's a certain family that happens within jazz music with all these instruments, this family of instruments working together and playing and just this wonderful thing. And you're drinking coffee and you're reading a book. This is a wonderful place to be when all those things are going on at the same time. There's some beauty of God's creation. Even in the ordinary things like listening to music, which we all probably do, and drinking coffee or interacting with a friend or sitting in a a place that you really like to sit there and just do do your work or read a book. There's a certain beauty to it. There's a certain goodness to that. And that is not an accident. That's not something that just happened to be. God created music. God created coffee. God created relationships. God created the world. And there's a beauty to it. There's a goodness to it. And that is great. All these things were birthed by the Spirit, by the speech of the Trinity. When God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit spoke, it came to be. In Hebrews 1.3 it says that God, the Trinity, upholds creation itself. Not only does it uphold your life, it upholds creation itself. That without God's power in creation, you would literally not be able to live. It would be impossible to live on the earth and do the things that you enjoy doing without God upholding his creation. He didn't just speak it into existence. He actually upholds it. He's providentially over it. It's, it's, it's amazing to think, like, when you think about the vastness of God's universe, right? When you think of planets and stars and galaxies and, and different systems, and you think of, of, of mountains and rivers and oceans and the depth of all of that, and that you are even identified in God's mind. Like, He even takes any time to identify you or even to acknowledge your existence and the vastness of His creation, that you're so tiny, so minuscule in all of the bigness of God, but yet he holds you in his actual hands. He, he is in charge of your life. He's in control of your life. Psalms 8, 3 through 4, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you even care about him in the light of God's creation? I mean, David is marveling at creation. David loved to write about, King David loved to write about God's creation and this majesty and its beauty and that he identifies, why do you even care to listen to us? Why do you even care to listen to our prayers? You're such a big and majestic God. The overwhelming presence of God in everything. God is love. He's always been and always will be the God of love. It's not something that he became love when he created you or when he sent Jesus to die for you. God has always been love. He loved his son. He loved the Holy Spirit. The Trinity loved one another. There was a relationship within the Trinity. God's love and his depth. And someone wrote in the beginning was love. The depth and richness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's love for one another. God's love for us, Romans 8, 38-39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And the greatness of God, the smallest things, is given tremendous weight. Isn't that amazing that God cares about children and babies that you love? That God also cares and loves the smallest things. The smallest things in God's creation have tremendous weight because He cares about them. The context of the passage today that we've been talking about the whole week a whole month is there's no condemnation in Christ. That Christ Jesus was offered for our sins, so that we may now live the Spirit, not the flesh. The same Spirit that dwells in you because of your trust in Christ raised Jesus from the actual death, the same spirit dwells in you. You now are set free to live, putting the death the deeds of the body, you are no longer a slave to sinful living. Why? Because you are a temple to the Lord. You are a child of God who we cry, Abba, Father. Not just children, but co-heirs with Christ as well. Our big brother is Christ Jesus, the Savior and King. He is the Lord Almighty. That is your brother. Anyone tries to mess with you, you think, watch out, man. My brother is the King of the universe. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one that raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. All names have been given. He's above all names. He has rule over everything. That is our brother. Who we share our inheritance, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. So you've been talking a lot about no combination. We're child and children of God. That we have the same spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is our is our heir, we're co heirs with Christ Jesus. We're children of God. But then why do you want to talk about suffering? Because it says in 17. Provided you suffer with Christ so that you will be glorified. Why the suffering? Why throw that word in there? Why do we even have to talk about suffering? We're children of God. We're putting to death the deeds of the body. I'm whooping my sin. Why do I have to suffer? What have I done? I'm righteous, right? I'm justified, and I'm putting to death the deeds of the body, man. I'm, I'm fighting victory over my sins, man. I'm coming to church. I'm doing great. I've got rid of all the addictions, all the other junk. I'm doing great. I've got all this promise. Why do I talking talk about suffering? What's the point of that? I don't want to hear about suffering. I'm a co heir. God wants to bless me, right? I just need to do what I need to do to get my blessings and promises to me, right? I mean, I'm a child of God. I deserve, I'm entitled to a lot of things. I'm doing it right now. I used to not do it right, but now I do it right. So why do we have to talk about suffering? Suffering happens to people who are bad and do bad things. I'm a child of God. So why the need for suffering? I want to talk about glory. I like glory. I don't know they really want to talk about suffering. The church, the people of God, those who put their trust in Christ for their salvation, whose identity is Christ, embodies a glorious promise that they wait eagerly for its arrival in the midst of a broken and dying world. That's kind of the main idea. Kind of four major points of pain, liberty, first fruits, and a certain hope. So number one, we have a problem. Suffering of this present age. We live in a present age where suffering is a reality for us all. To whatever degree we have suffered, we have all suffered and will suffer in some ways and some forms. If you have children, you will probably suffer in some ways or some forms, right? Suffering is not something you can somehow uh, protect yourself from. Suffering will come into your life. If some, if, if, who knows what's going to happen to us in the future one of us may have cancer at some point of our lives. you cannot somehow prevent that. You may read some article online that says do these five things and you can prevent yourself from having cancer. yeah that's not going to prevent you. it may help but that's things are going to happen to us that are outside of our control. We live in a fallen and decaying world. So there's going to be suffering in this present age. There's going to be momentary affliction that's going to happen to you. Think of Paul's life, right? Paul dealt with suffering. I was going through the book of Acts. I can't, I can't counting how many times he was beaten or arrested. It happened more than once. It happened one, two, three, four, four times. He, he was stoned in Acts 14, 19. He was actually stoned. He was beaten. Uh, it was plots against his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he presents this laundry list of things that happened to him. This is before he was actually arrested and taken to Rome and then killed. This is before that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that... uh, Let me just start here. It says, five times. Okay, far greater labor, far more imprisonment, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes... Forty lashes, five times. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked three times. I got like, and the one time an axe, but it says three times he was shipwrecked. That was before the, the time an axe. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. For those who have little children, you're like, did anyone experience this sleeplessness? Yeah, Paul didn't even have children, and he dealt with sleeplessness. And hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. I mean... This is, and he also said, I dealt with the daily pressures and anxieties for the churches that I worked with. He was worried about them constantly. So Paul recognizes suffering and affliction. He dealt with this in a very, pretty extreme way. And so we may not be beaten with rods or receive lashes or, or thrown into prison. But we do suffer in life. There's failures. We fail in our works, right? We make mistakes. Right, we make mistakes. We do things that we that we did because either we were we just didn't think about it or just we just make mistakes. We cannot prevent ourselves from making mistakes. People talk about human error because humans make mistakes. There is a, um, I was listening, watching this documentaries on Formula One racing on Netflix, and on the one of the first episodes, the American team, the Haas racing team, one of the crewmen, when the when the car came out to the pit, it didn't put the wheel on correct. And so, because he didn't put the wheel on correctly, he had to come back, and had to change the tire, and then he ended up losing. But then, the other car, because each team has two cars, the same guy did it again. He put the wheel on wrong, and because he put the wheel on wrong, the second guy, the second driver on the team, also lost. Because this one guy made a mistake. It's not like he meant to make the mistake, it wasn't like he intended to make the mistake, he just made a mistake. failed. And he felt the shame and, and just the disappointment that, he, that his team uh, experienced because of his mistake. We fail. We make mistakes. We are disappointed. We feel left out of the crowd, right? Some of us want to be friends with certain people. And maybe you are friends with them, but you're not part of the, like the close-knit part of the friendship, and you're left out. Of vacations or, or lunches or, or outings or or parties or these types of things, you feel left out. You are disappointed. You may become very sad. You are sinned against, right? People sin against you. People may have maybe maybe you didn't. Maybe you're not the reason why you are uh, needing to be adopted, right? Maybe it's not your fault, but you're sinned against. You are suffering because someone else sinned against you were falsely accused. I know one person in this room who was falsely accused for a crime that he didn't commit. That's a suffering that he experienced, not because something he did wrong, but because he's in a world that we're in and so there's suffering. We're anxious, we're worried, we legitimately worry about things. Some people worry about food, like they're actually gonna get food for that day. People suffer. There's sleeplessness. Like I said, I know for one, didn't I was saying recently that he's getting very little sleep because of his new baby. Right? Sleeplessness, that's a suffering. Like when you don't get good sleep and you can't think correctly and you can't act like yourself because you're not getting any sleep, that's a suffering angry about a situation with a fractured relationship. Maybe you have regrets about your past. You've lost something or you've caused something to be lost or you've felt lost or you're enduring loss. These are all parts of momentary affliction that the world experienced, that we in this room experience. There's affliction that precedes mortification. It's all true what Paul says in chapter 8. We are all under no condemnation. We're in the spirit we're in Christ. We're child, children of God. We're put into death the deeds of the body. We're co-heirs with Christ, but we live in a fallen world. We still possess bodies of death, and therefore our faith must be tested by fire. First Peter 1.7 and may we be found to rebu- may that be found to result in glory. Affliction and suffering in this present age is the the is the reality that we live in as we move closer to. Lord. Suffering is the means of our sanctification. It's the testing of our faith. Hence, why Peter says in 4.13, to rejoice in your suffering, because your suffering, you're identifying yourself with Christ, and your suffering produces sanctification, and you're becoming more like Christ. <coughs> Conforming to Christ hurts is a painful transformation yet it leads to glory. Hence, it is not worth comparing your momentary afflictions to the glory that is to be revealed. We don't compare our sufferings and our afflictions today and compare it to the glory that is going to happen to us because even when we think about what's going to happen to us in the future, we know that our suffering and our affliction doesn't have is not meaningless, it has a purpose. It conforms us to Christ. Creation itself deals with suffering in the same it, it, very similarly. When we think about this passage and talking about creation, we're not talking about humans. We're talking about uh, creation. So everything that's not human. We're talking about animals. We're talking about uh, the, the land. We're talking about the <coughs> sea. We're talking about the birds and the fish and the sky and all these different things. All the material universe other than humans is being spoken here. And it groans in pain. It says, Paul says, it's been subject to fertility, not by Adam's Adam's sin. Our sin has subject uh, uh, creation to fertility, to death, to decay, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God is the one who decreed that it will be subjected to fertility because of sin. The universal effect of sin <coughs> in the universe. Uh, David read from Romans five twelve. The, the that sin of Adam brought death into the world, but Adam's sin also brought death to everything, not just me and you, but also <coughs> to everything in the universe has been subject to fertility. The present reality is described as a bondage <coughs> to corruption. We think about the, the judgment that God did in the Garden of Eden, right? What happened after the, the Adam and Eve sinned? They hid themselves, and then when God interacted with them and cursed them, what did he do? He killed an animal to clothe them. Because of the sin, the only way that, that they were going to be clothed is that God killed an animal so that they could have clothing. So already the creation is experiencing the effects of Adam's sin. What happens to the flood? The whole creation is, is destroyed by the flood. And not only did people die, but animals died. Remember, there's only two, two of every kind. There's a lot of others that did not get into the flood, and they didn't get into the ark. So creation would experience the judgment of the fall. The fate of animals is death because of sin. The abuse of the land is a result of sin. Pollution is a result of sin. That's why I don't... The, the whole green agenda or green initiative is not something that, that Christians should be somewhat, should, should be completely against. Now, now, obviously creation is not a god. Now we're not trying to protect the divinity of creation. But within this understanding is, is that... The Sabbath rest, you know, Paul, uh, um, God, Moses says in Exodus 23, uh, verse 10, that there should be a Sabbath year, right? You should work the land for six years and then rest for set for the seventh year. Or even the Sabbath rest on the seventh day. It said even animals should rest from their work. There should be a, 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 a harmony between man and creation, but sin has broken that that, har- that harmony. Creation is not what it was intended to be. You think of, like, the, you've seen pictures online of the plastic all in the sea? Have you seen these pictures? There's, like, it's, it's kind of, you see, like, people literally, like, standing on top of plastic that has basically gotten to the sea, and it's kind of, like, all collected near each other, and it's just this sea of plastic in the actual sea. Do you think God intended that to be? Like, do you think God intended when he created the ocean there to be plastic everywhere? Like, that's not what God intended it to be. That is a result of sin. Not a happenstance, not something that just happened to be, but because of sin. And creation groans, it says. There's deep sorrow in the pain of childbirth. It it waits for something. The Creation is actually waiting for something. It waits with eager longing. It painfully anticipates what? It endures what pain? What childbirth pain is it enduring? It says that they are waiting for the joy to come. That creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the children of God. That creation is waiting for the children of God to be risen to newness and in life to experience the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. Creation eagerly awaits that day. Why? Why does it wait that day? Number two is liberty. There will be revolution in this century. They're waiting for freedom. They're in hope. They've been subject to fertility, they've been subject because of of the sin of Adam, because of the sin of man, and hope, creation awaits for its liberty from its current suffering. To be set free from its bondage to corruption, subjected to this corruption by God because of sin, sin has affected everything that you love in this world. There's, I don't know if you are uh, Parks and Rec fans here. So one of the most beloved characters in that show is not one of the main characters, right? It's the little horse. Oh, the little statue. It's like the most, I mean, it's probably the most beloved character in the show. So much that when he dies, Ron Swanson, who never cries, cries. There is something, because and that may be funny and it's part of but there's something to this that we love things in, Earth, in the creation, right? And it dies. Why does it die? Not because little well, animals die. No, 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 no. It dies because of sin and the result of sin. And so creation awaits for the consummation of God's kingdom just as much as believers wait. Because it will be set free. Creation cries out in hope of its freedom. God will renew all things by his power. God's plan of redemption includes creation itself. So Christians are not against environmentalism, it's not against green agenda, because God wants to renew creation. That should be something liberals or progressives or environmentalists only care about. The Bible cares about creation, and creation itself awaits for God's consummation, because it will obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. On tippy-toes, creation eagerly awaits for the coming consummation of our salvation in Christ, the resurrection of the body leads to complete reversal of the power of sin in the whole universe. So when 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 the church is risen to new life, when their salvation is complete, creation will also be renewed and reverse all the effects of sin. So read right, the simple the salvation in Christ is not simply your sins are forgiven. Come to Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. That's true, but that is only part of salvation. Salvation in Christ is cosmic. It's a cosmic power. The resurrection of by at least the complete reversal of the power of sin in the whole universe. All is set free except those who are under God's judgment for their unbelief. This includes everyone. There's resurrection, there's renewal. There's renewal from corruption. The only ones who are left out of this are those who do not trust in God and His Son. Romans 6.23 says, for uh, the wages of sin is death. Uh, Hebrews 9.27, it's for all men to die once, and then there comes judgment because of their unbelief in God. Flee corruption, trust in Christ. Revelation 14, that talks about all the wrath and the judgments of God. The purpose of Revelation as a letter is not to present some crazy left-behind series uh, understanding how God's going to come again or how Christ is going to do The point of Revelation is to plead with the world to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Beware of the warnings. Beware of the judgments of God that are coming. Flee corruption and turn to Christ. And eagerly await the fullness of your salvation. Point number three is the first fruit. First flowers bloom from winter dormancy. I don't know if you know, I, I lived in D.C. for a little bit. And so the big thing with D.C. in the fall, in the spring, I'm sorry, is the cherry blossoms. If you've never been to D.C. during the cherry blossom uh, peak, it's like gorgeous. The whole city just pops with pink cherries. But the way that they determine when the peak Season for the peak time to come see the cherry blossoms is they wait for the first bloom. So basically, whenever the first bloom happens, then they expect or they project when the peak blossom will be. But you have to test it from the first bloom, from the first flower that blooms. So we ourselves, so it, it moves from creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit also grow with pain. We have received the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. Christ tells us in John sixteen seven that the Spirit is our helper. It will convict us of sin. It will lead us to truth. It will lead us to understanding. It will lead us to remember the salvation we have in Christ and what Christ did on earth. We are joined to Christ in the Spirit. We, we, the Spirit illuminates our mind and hearts to understand God's Word. Do you remember the day when you're like, I don't understand any of this stuff? Like, what does this stuff mean? And then all of a sudden you understand it? That's not something like you just got smarter one day, that somehow genetics just kind of kicked in all of a sudden. That is because of the Spirit of God, it illuminates your mind, and it points you to truth, and it gives you understanding and wisdom. It leads you to repentance and worship. The indwelling Spirit is the down payment of our future glory when all will be fulfilled. If you've been to Disney World in the last several years, you'll you'll know that uh, everyone gets the bands in the mail like a month ahead of time. So you get your bands, like that you're going to be wearing as like some type of robot at Disney World, where you're going to like pay for all your stuff. It's been far more money than you have or should spend at Disney World. They give you the band, and you can buy everything that you want and desire on that band, which is connected to your credit card. And um, you, can, you can you can personalize you can get different colors and Marvel characters and Star Wars characters and all sort of things. But they send it into the mail like a month to get you excited, right? To get the kids excited. It's kind of like a down payment. All right, we we've paid everything we're going to pay. We got the bands. We're going, right? It's coming. We are going. So it's a guarantee. It's a promise. It's an action of good faith that we are. The future uh, uh, promise will be fulfilled to us. And we desire our complete transformation. We groan with deep sorrow to be made whole, to experience the fullness of our salvation. That's why we groan, because we have the Spirit. We, We understand God's Word. We understand our salvation in Christ. We're sick and tired of sin. We're tired that we sin and make mistakes. We just want to be with Christ. That's groaning. That's a deep sorrow, and you're waiting for this full completion of your salvation. The excitement of a new believer, you may not understand this groaning, right? When you're a new believer, like, you're so excited, you're full of just, you just want to listen to the worship music all the time, you want to be at church all the time, you want to fellowship all the time. But then as you mature as a believer, and sin starts to really sit in the dirt, and you're still going to make mistakes, you're still going to sin, you're still going to uh, be in this body of death, you start to groan. You just want to be with Christ. That's what this feeling is. We've grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as children. We wait eagerly. We know God will fulfill his promise. We know. It says, if you go back to Romans 8, it's interesting how Paul phrases this. He says, Going back to, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of transverse until now. And not in the pains of transverse until we now, only the creation, but we ourselves, we the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is something that is guaranteed. It will happen. Paul, God does not lie. Titus 1-2. We should be marking the days of our adoption, the completion of our salvation, to, we, in sense, body the truth in his word. We are given the spirit of God. We embody the salvation in ourselves. And we want to be with Christ. We want to be what we were intended to be. We want to be what God created us to be. We want to be our perfect selves. People talk about being themselves and finding themselves. You will not be completely yourself and what God intended you to be until you are Resurrected from, from the dead. When you are, when you are consummated. When you are, your salvation is complete and fulfilled. So, through that, we groan. We suffer together as we wait for that day. And, and therefore, Christian fellowship, worship, sanctification, knowledge, all of these things we grow in. We grow in these things. And as we grow in these things, we groan for more of it. Right? The, for some of us who got together on Friday night with the Men's Fellowship, like, I have a hard time wanting to, those days to end. And I groan when I, they have to end, right? You, or in times of worship, you really don't want it to end. Let's do more, more music. Let's hear more from God. That's a groaning that we have to separate ourselves from it. Or groan when we, I don't know if you've gotten that, that point in that season where you just want to read more and more and more and more and more about God. And you groan that you just can't read enough and can't know enough. We wait eagerly for completion and fulfillment, for the resurrection of our body, the incorruptible and the immortal body. Therefore, what we wait for with eager longing is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. The world and its sufferings and momentary pleasures suck in comparison to God's glory. It's not even worth comparing. We long for too much of this world. Mud pies over vacations at the sea, as Lewis says. We desire those things far too much. If we understood what God promised us in the future, we would never compromise or become content with those things. This hope gives us joy to endure, to be encouraged, to eagerly long for the fullness of our salvation to come, the cosmic scope of, of salvation, the transformation of the entire person, the eventual salvation of the entire created universe itself. It's something we should long for with eager expectation. The last point is a certain hope. Joy comes in the morning. Life really wouldn't be worth living if joy didn't come in the morning. When suffering happens, if there's that joy that comes at some point, it wouldn't really be worth living. It would just be suffering after suffering, affliction after affliction, and there would never be a time of joy. We were saved in this hope, Paul says. Salvation is already art, man. It's already been guaranteed. Like, if you're like wondering if this stuff is really if this if this stuff really is going to be, it is going to be. You are saved already. You are a new person in Christ. It's already happened. You are already that person in Christ. It just hasn't happened yet in reality. It hasn't been realized yet. It's like Christmas gifts that are under the tree. They've already been bought in full. But they've not yet been experienced yet. They've been bought. They're under the tree. So it's going to be a time of opening them. This hasn't happened yet. There's a time of waiting. We groan with excitement for our coming glory. Hope is not seen. So I'm going to go off for a second on prosperity gospel. That stuff presents a worldview, this idea that everything is in the material world. That your hope is the here and now. And that it's something that you can have right now. Just speak it and it will come. That is such a false. You have to wait. You have to endure. You have to suffer. Before prosperity happens in Christ. Hope is not transformational in a prosperity gospel world. Hope is just material. It's just wellness. It's just whatever It's whatever illness or health that you want. It's not transformational. It's not making you want you as a sinner who is now a saint in Christ. And that happens through affliction and suffering, not from material wealth. We wait with eager and painful endurance for our coming hope. So why is Christian life so hard? You hear that question a lot. Why is it hard? It's hard, but life is hard. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. Being a Christian doesn't make hard life any easier, nor is life any easier if you're not a Christian. Life is hard. We live in a fallen world. We suffer. We have afflictions. We, have, we make mistakes. That is reality. We will die. We may get an illness and die. That is not something that you can escape if you're a Christian or not a Christian. Life is hard. So why is a Christian life hard? It's hard because with all the truth, you're a child of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. You have no condemnation. You've been justified by by faith in Christ. And you also suffer. You have to wait for a future reality that is already yours. We wait for it in suffering, endurance, killing sin, groaning in knowledge. We groan together. We kill sin together. We endure together. We suffer together as we march towards our coming glory. That's why community is so important. Community is not some fab that churches just got into five years ago. Like, oh, we're a church about community. That's why our church is called you know, cross, you know, whatever community church. Like, as if it's, like, I'm not a fab. As if it's something like we all, uh, all of a sudden discovered that community was important. Community has been always important for the Christian. Because you cannot groan and suffer by yourself. You will fail. You will want to give up the faith if you have to suffer alone. That's why we're in the church. That's why we're in the body together. We gather as people who are eagerly waiting the same fate. We endure the same fate. We help one another cross the desert to the end of the journey. The journey to our expected home. We journey together. We don't sit someone out in the desert by themselves with no water to somehow expect they're going to cross the desert into the promised land. They will die there. We groan together. We suffer together. We cry together. We laugh together. We celebrate adoptions together. We do all these things together. We do these things because life is groaning, it's suffering, there's affliction, and we can't see the greater comparison, the greater glory if you do it by ourselves. We just can't do it. So, one of the values here at Redeemer is community, and one of the teams that we started with, Shepherding Team, and you can talk to to Sean Melvin more about that, if you are one of these people who want to help the church get together more, and fellowship together, do more men's fellowship, do more women's fellowships, come together as believers, loving one another and caring for each other. Because the present momentary affliction are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. And if we don't remind ourselves of the glory to be revealed, we will be in agony. We will suffer by ourselves. We will give up hope. We will give up the faith. We will turn away. And I believe not to turn away. So the way that you don't turn away, the way that you stay firm and stay fast is to walk alongside together to walk with one another, to pray with one another, to be in each other's homes, to be in worship together. Don't neglect the coming together of Jesus. Let's pray. The Lord, we pray that that we as believers